Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, we're returning again this morning to our series on living together in Christian community. Living together in Christian community and the next lesson for us has to do with forgiveness. Has to do with forgiveness. Forgiveness is absolutely foundational to the Christian religion. It is essential. It is an essential part of Christianity. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's one of the defining marks of Christianity. Forgiveness. It's what separates Christianity from all other pretender religions throughout the world. Forgiveness. Christianity deals with the problem of sin by overcoming it through forgiveness. Did you ever think about that? Christianity deals with the problem of sin by overcoming it through forgiveness. All the other religions of the world come up short in this area. They leave people on an endless treadmill of religious duties, obligations, as they attempt to make peace with God and with their fellow man. But that's not true of Christianity. Beyond that, all other religions other than Christianity, the one and only true religion, all others leave people in a graceless state, unable to deal with the injustices of the world. No ability to deal with the problems in this world, the injustices that come to each and every one of us as we walk through life. They turn people to stew in their own toxic juice. The result is bitterness, anger, revenge, and even suicide. A terrible state of affairs. What is forgiveness? If it is a defining mark of Christianity, what is forgiveness? What is it? Well, simply put, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. We don't, we don't feel forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise. Forgiveness is actually a threefold promise. A threefold promise. And here it is. It is a promise that in response to our repentance, the offended party will not bring up our sin again, either to us or to themselves or to anyone else. It is a threefold promise that in response to our repentance, the offended party will not bring up our sin again, either to us or to themselves or to anyone else. It overcomes sin. 
Now, the means by which the guilt of our sin is removed and the, the scales of justice balanced is that God sent his own son into the world, right? God sent his own son into the world to die on behalf of his people. To drink of the, of the cup of the wrath of God for all of the sin of his people of all time. That each and every single one would be extinguished. Beloved, that makes forgiveness ultimately a, a divine activity absent human merit. There's no human merit involved in forgiveness. It's a, it's a one-way transaction. What I mean by that, in other words, is, is that you can never deserve to be forgiven. Think about that. You can never deserve to be forgiven. All we can do is plead for it and hope in the gracious character of the one who was offended. We must throw themselves upon, we must throw ourselves upon the mercy of the one who has been offended. Now, when it comes to, to offenses that go on between believers within the body, we, we need to recognize that first and foremost, all sin is ultimately an offense against who? God. It is ultimately an offense against God. And his, the sacrifice of his son clears the account. That's how the, that's how the scales of justice get balanced when we transgress. God balances them himself. So forgiveness is not a, a balancing of the scales, right? I... I I, you know, repent and ask your forgiveness and, and so somehow that balances the scale and now you've got to give it to me. That's not what happens. God is the one who balances the scales. The reality of all of this is very, very important because what it means is, is that forgiveness is, is an essential characteristic of God. Our God is a forgiving God. Therefore, we who are made in his image and remade in the image of his son through redemption must be a forgiving people. It is not an option. It is not like an advanced course in Christian living. There's like basic Christian living, and then there's, for the overachievers, there's the forgiveness elective. <laughs> Take it if you like. Pass, fail, right? No. Uh-uh. It, it, it is a hopeless contradiction to, to claim God as our Father and not emulate his character as a forgiving individual. It's just, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Now, I know what you're, you're thinking, and I know what you're feeling, and you're feeling the tension of all of this at the moment. 
Because when we look at our own lives and we look at our own heart, what, what we conclude is, is that we don't always bear the family likeness very well. Isn't that true? I mean, we, we've, got the, we've got the thumbprint of God stamped into us, and yet the family likeness gets a little blurred at times. We don't forgive like we ought on many occasions. We kind of like to hang on to things. There's a, there's a certain perverse sense of pleasure in, in having one up on someone. Or, or maybe extracting a little bit of pressure from them. Let's let them grovel a little. Let's punish them a little. And then we'll forgive them. But our God doesn't treat us like that. Our God doesn't treat us like that. His arms are open wide to his children. And so when we, when we don't bear the family likeness of, of being a forgiving individual like we ought to, we have sinned. We have sinned. What's the way back for the follower of, of Christ when one gets their feet dirty in sin, to use a John 13 analogy? It's to get your feet washed, right? So it is to repent of that sin. Throw yourself back onto the mercy of God in Christ. Rejoice in your redemption and begin to walk in the light again. That's what we must do. That's what we must do. And the, the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms us. It transforms us. Now, with all of that in mind, if you can keep it there, maybe put a finger in one ear so it doesn't get out, I'm going to pour some more in the other side. Okay, so Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and verses 21 to 35 this morning. We're finishing chapter 18 this morning, part of that series, we've talked about living together in Christian community. And it's here in verses 21 through 35 that Jesus is going to make it very, very, very clear for his disciples that we must live a life of forgiveness. Not an option. Not an option. And he does this in a, in a, in a way that is uh, really confrontive. But why should that surprise us, right? He does that all the time. And what he reveals in these verses, 21 through 35, that there are no boundaries to our forgiveness save one. And that is the lack of repentance on the part of the offending party. The only boundary on the forgiveness a Christian is compelled to grant is the lack of repentance on the part of the offending party. Now, specifically, we're going to look at the text this morning and kind of structured it this way. A question, an answer, a story. Simple outline. A question, an answer, and a story. So let's begin with the question. 
verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Stop right there. Now, every verse in the Bible has a context, right? And an interpretation that, that ignores the context is not, a, is not a interpretation. It's a pretext to do something else, something nefarious with the text. The context for us here in verse 21 is that it follows right after verses 15 through 20 where, where Jesus has just spoken to them about the process of restorative church discipline. Restorative church discipline, right? Verses 15 through 20 that my brother Vince did a fine job on last fall, and I direct you again this morning back to our website. If you've not listened to all five of those sermons, you need to do that. So verses 15 through 20 is the process of restorative church discipline. Prior to verse 15, verses 6 through 14 is, is about what we talked about last week, which is our obligation and duty, each and every one of us, to go and to seek out our brother and sister that are part of a local fellowship that have stumbled and wandered off and are in danger of their soul. But back here to verse 21, the question Peter asks is, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? If you look at verse 15, I just want you to notice the first part of verse 15 so you, you see the tight context here that this question flows out of. If your brother sins, just stop there. That's, the, that's where he begins the process, the instruction that he gives. And so, so Jesus, if your brother sins, and then this, and then this, and then this, and this, all designed to bring your brother back into, into fellowship and relationship with you and the body. And then back to at verse 21, Peter says, okay, granted that. Got it. Got it. My question now is, how often? <laughs> how often now do I forgive? Okay, I'm, I'm not disputing that I need to forgive. What I'm now asking is not whether I should forgive, but what's the extent of this forgiveness? What are the boundaries? What are the limits? What's common sense here? How long should one be long-suffering with a brother or sister in Christ who has been taken aside in sin and has offended you in their sin? In other words, they're a repeat offender. They're a repeat offender. How many times does, does the instructions of Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15 have to be, you know, put into play? That's what I'm asking, Jesus. And by the way, I, I think Peter is, is asking on behalf. I think he's acting as the spokesman of the 12 here again. So I think he's asking the question that they're all, if they couldn't formulate it exactly, they're all kind of wondering because that's a normal human thing to wonder. Right? How many times? Okay, my brother sins against me. Uh, I don't want to, but I go to him, and you know, okay, and then they repent, and I grant forgiveness, and I promise I'll never bring it up to myself again, and I'll never bring it up to them again, and I'll never tell anybody else about it, and, and we're all cool, and then he does it again. 
does it again. So Peter, Peter says, uh, up to seven times. Now, I don't know the tone of his voice when he asked the question, clearly. But uh, I can tell you this, that, that rabbinic teaching at that time said three times is the limit. Three times. So, um, so I'm not sure, you know, where Peter got seven, but it certainly looks pretty magnanimous compared to three. So maybe it's, I don't know. But he says up to seven. Now let's be, let's be candid with each other. We think three is pretty magnanimous too. Right? I mean, we're not, we're not even talking seven. Most of us would think three is a really good number. You know, it's like foundational to baseball, three strikes, you're, you're out of here, right? I mean, think about it this way with me. Let's say there's, um, there's an individual. Uh, you and this individual, and you, you, you open up your home, you invite them into your home for dinner and and conversation, you're trying to get to know them a little bit. You know, they're, you're in a Bible study together and kind of new. And so you, you do the really difficult Christian thing of extending some hospitality to them. And you invite them into the home. And, and after dinner, you're talking and so forth. And in the, and in the course of the conversation, they insult you. They, they, they speak in such a way that they, they draw your character into question and your motives. And, I mean, they really insult you. And then they leave. And after you get done breaking the dishes, you know, <laughs> stomping around the house and saying, I can't believe the nerve of that person, you, you, uh, the Spirit of God kind of impresses it on your heart and mind. Oh, if, I can't, you know, if I can't cover this thing over in love, then uh, that means Matthew 18 and verse 15. Oh, Pastor Vince was preaching on that. Okay, I know what I've got to do, right? He who has the sore toes knows, and so he goes. So you go to that person, you get your courage, you pray, you go to that person, you have coffee, you get the whole dry mouth thing going, you know, and, and, uh, and you kind of explain it to them. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I, 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 I didn't mean to insult you. I didn't, I didn't realize I was insulting you. You know, I haven't been a believer that long, and, and uh, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I, I, I deeply regret what I have done. And you say, I forgive you. I forgive you. You go home and your wife says, so how'd it go? And you go, it went pretty good. He didn't throw any coffee at me. It, you know, we're, we're cool. We're reconciled. Fantastic. Matthew 18, 15, I like that. That works. And then, uh, and then next week, the Bible study, you're getting together, and it's beforehand, and people are standing around, and they're talking, and this, that, and the other thing. And you see the guy across the room, and he's kind of going around the room, and he's talking to different people, and he walks right by you and doesn't say a word to you. And he doesn't, he doesn't look at you, and he doesn't address you all night long at the Bible study, and then he leaves. And you think to yourself, what a jerk. I mean, you wouldn't all think that, but... Some of you out there would think that. What a jerk. I, th I, thought we were, I thought we were all cool with this. And now I've been snubbed. 
Matthew 18, 15, I'm going to do it again. So you, you call him up, another cup of coffee, you go, and, and you say, hey, you know, I thought we were good. And, and then when the Bible study last week, you know, you walk right by me, you didn't even look at me, you never spoke to me. Uh, you know, you were in my home, <laughs> and you didn't even speak to me. You really have sinned against me again. Oh, I am so, so sorry. I, I, I was walking, I was getting ready to shake your hand, and then, and then somebody behind you was going like this. They needed to talk to me, and I, and I went over to talk to them, and then one thing led to another, and the study started, and, uh, and I had to go home because I got to get up to go to work early, and uh, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I was so rude. Sinned against you. Will you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. I forgive you. I won't, I'm done. I won't bring it up anymore. We're cool. Everything's good. Great. A week later, same Bible study. You say something dumb at the Bible study, and uh, this person makes a joke of it, and everybody starts to laugh, and then the color, you know, kind of comes up from your, your neckline up through your ears, and, uh, and you're super embarrassed, and you're offended all over again, and that's it. You're done with this guy, right? You're going to change Bible studies. You're going to change churches. You're going to at least sit over here because that idiot sits over here, and you want nothing to do with him, right? Strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out of here. Oh, no, not Peter. Peter says, up to seven times? Up to seven times, Lord? I mean, we got to feel this. Because this passage is really well known and really well ignored. The answer, verse 22. The answer. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Now, I can imagine, you know, I got a pretty good imagination. So I can imagine being there and watching Peter's jaw, like, settle on his collarbone. Bump. S 70 times seven? Really? Now, it's interesting, the, uh, the, there's a really long compound Greek word here that's, that's uh, translated uh, uh, 70 times 7 in the New American Standard. It's translated actually in the ESV, I think more correctly, personal opinion, that it's actually 77 times. So it can be 70 times 7. It can be 77 times. All right, so it could be the number 77 that Jesus answered. It could be the number 490. Okay? Uh, but it's not the point. I think it's 77 times, and the reason I think it's 77 times is because it ties so well into uh, Genesis chapter 4, where Lamech, uh, you remember Lamech, he was the fellow who said that uh, basically if Cain is, is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. Lamech's little, little uh, rap song there, in, uh, in Genesis 4 is, uh, is sort of an ode to unlimited vindictiveness. The ode to unlimited vindictiveness. So I think Jesus is actually has that in mind when he comes back to Peter. He's not talking about math. 
He's drawing Peter back to that, and he's saying, listen, if, if, if this is sort of the, the, the ultimate expression of vindictiveness, then for the follower of me, my disciple, a child of the kingdom of God, it needs to be the ultimate expression of forgiveness. 77 times. Now, if you like 490, that's good. Okay? Because the point of the whole thing is, is, is not to get involved in pedantic counting. Right? You know, we don't keep a little thing in our top pocket and you're getting close, you know, better give you a warning. Right? That, would, that completely would go against the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is that, that as a disciple of his, as a, as a member of the believing community, our forgiveness of our brothers and sisters within this community is to know no boundaries, no limits. No limits. For a follower of Christ, forgiveness is a way of life. It is a way of life. We are forgiven. Amen? Therefore, we must be forgiving people. It's as simple as that. Now, I can imagine that, uh, you know, Peter's not alone with the jaw thing. He's probably looking around, you've got to see them all kind of, you know, like a series of 12 cave entrances, you know. And Jesus doesn't let it rest there. Because he, he, he comes right back to them now with a parable. He tells them a parable. And, and he, he's driving home the point of his answer with this, this parable. And it's, about a, it's a parable, it's a story about a man who has been freely forgiven and thus should freely forgive others and yet refuses. Yet refuses. The story really uh, serves to illustrate and, and act as the reason Behind Jesus' command here that our forgiveness in verse 22 is to be limitless. Limitless. It's really a startling kind of parable, as most of his are. It's constructed like a three-act play. So we're here with the story, right? So we had a question, we have an answer, we got the story. It's presented to us like a three-act play. Act one, act two, act three. And then a, then a conclusion application of the story. Each, each scene advances the, the storyline to drive us to that final application in verse 35. So scene one, let's just kind of work our way through it quickly. Again, this is, this is very familiar ground to us, but let's pray the Spirit of God would let us hear it with some new ears this morning. Okay, so scene one, verses 23 to 27. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So Jesus is going to make a comparison here in this parable between the actions of, a, of a, the merciful king, a merciful king here, the father, the king of heaven, and the recipient of that mercy who hypocritically receives that mercy but in turn will not grant similar mercy and forgiveness to someone else. Okay, that's the storyline. The conclusion of this is that that kind of person cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Cannot be. 
So let the story begin. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle, uh, excuse me, verse 23, for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. All right, this is a made-up story, okay? This is a made-up story. The beauty of made-up stories is that they, uh, they're the teaching one point, one point only, and that, and that the details uh, are not to be pressed into, you know, extended meanings, okay? Jesus is not trying to teach a whole bunch of things. He's trying to teach just one thing in a made-up story. That's really good. Because that allows us to really kind of home in here on the, on the main point of the story. And the main point of the story is this. There's a certain man who we don't know. Who owes an astronomically large sum of money to a king? An astronomically large sum of money. And he can't repay it. It says that he owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Okay, so, uh, so 10,000 is the largest Greek number. Okay, often translated myriads. Talents is the largest unit of monetary measure in the, in the world of that day. So you've got the largest unit of monetary measure times the largest number, 10,000 talents, he owes. Now, some people get into, you know, well, how did a guy possibly, you know, get, get that kind of crazy debt? You know, who, who would lend him that kind of money? And, and I, stop. Stop. It's inconsequential. Listen, you want, you want a vernacular translation? There was a certain guy who owed zillions of dollars. Okay, how do you like that? There was a certain guy who, owned, who owed zillions of dollars. How he came to find himself in that position is inconsequential. That's where he is. He owes more than could ever hope to be repaid. Ever. One could not even make a dent in it. Because he can't repay, he can't repay this debt that he owes, the, the king to whom he owes the debt orders that he is sold into slavery along with everything he has, including his wife and his children, his family. Why? To repay the debt? No, the debt cannot be repaid. To make, you know, well, to make an installment payment, no. You can't even make a dent in a debt this big. Why? Because it's punishment. He's being punished. And it's a kind of punishment, by the way, that, that really serves as a good warning to other people who, who fail to make their debt payments. Okay? So the guy, he, he recognizes he is in desperate Straits here, right? So he, he throws himself literally at the feet of the king. You got a you know, picture kind of maybe grabbing a hold of his ankles. And, and he pleads with the king for mercy. 
He wants mercy here. And, and interestingly, the mercy he wants is time. Just give me some time. I'm good for it. <laughs> you know, just can't we, can't we renegotiate the payment schedule? I mean, it's insane what he's even asking for. He wants time to repay an unpayable debt. Now, there's a, there's a surprise here. There's a hook in this story that, that, that captures you and brings you in. Because you might conceive of a king who at the moment says, fine, I'll give you another year. And that would be mercy. But that's not what he does. Right? What does he do? In response to this plea for mercy, what he says is, it's all gone. It's all gone. Your unpayable debt has been lifted from you. Go in peace. Scene two. Verses 28 to 30. The scene, it shifts now, right? It shifts and, and we've got this, this, this servant who's been recently forgiven this, this, this zillion dollar debt, this unpayable debt, and, and he goes out and he finds another servant and you could easily uh, write in here, i.e. a brother who owes him 100 days wages. 100 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. Owes 100 days wages. Now, this is not an insignificant debt, to be sure. But the point is the comparisons. It's peanuts compared to a zillion dollars. But that slave, verse 28, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So what is the first thing the forgiven sinner do, does? Right, The guy who owed the zillion dollars, the, the forgiven servant, the forgiven slave. He goes out and he finds somebody who owes him money. Right? And he grabs the guy by the throat, and he starts to... You know, apply a little pressure to the windpipe and demands that this man immediately repay the hundred days' wages that he owes. The second servant, he pleads for more time to repay. He uses identical language to what the first servant had used with the, with the king in his unpayable debt. But rather than being moved to mercy at all, what does the servant do? He hardens his heart. It says, he was unwilling. He was unwilling. And he has the second slave, the second servant, thrown into prison. Now, Jesus has uh, made up this story. He has intentionally made up this story exactly the way he tells it here. And he has done it using the the. the, the the widest possible difference of, of situations because he wants to draw us in. He wants us to feel indignation at the injustice of it all, at the, at the heartlessness of it all. He wants us to feel like King David felt when Nathan the prophet came to him after his sin with Bathsheba and arranging for the, for the death of Uriah, her husband, right? 
Do you remember what Nathan did? He came and he told David a story. And he said, you know, there was this rich guy with big flocks and there was this other poor man and he had one little lamb and it was the family possession and he used to bring it into his home and, and care for it and so forth. And the, and the big, rich, powerful guy had a visitor come from out of town and he wanted to feed him a, a feast. And so rather than take a lamb out of his flock, he takes this poor little man's, or this poor man's little lamb, has it sacrificed and offers it to his guest. Right? And what does David say? You don't have to remember, I'll read it to you. Right? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan's story accomplishes what it was intended to do. And then Nathan goes in the old King James, which is what they spoke in those days, thou art the man, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, this story here in Matthew 18 is supposed to do the same thing to you and to me. That's what's supposed to happen. It's not supposed to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're supposed to go, that is ridiculous. How could someone be so hypocritical? How could someone be so cruel, so hard-hearted to have been forgiven such a massive, unpayable debt and to refuse to, to forgive what in comparison is, is a trifling? Well, predictably uh, here in scene three, when his fellow slaves, verse 31, saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. So the, the slaves, the others, the brothers as it were, see what happens, and, and this is a, such a travesty of justice that they cannot let it go. So they go and they tell the king, and then the king, right, verse 32, then summoning him, his lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. He calls the first man back before him, he expresses his opinion on this man's character, you are a wicked man. You are a wicked man. And the reason why you're a wicked man is because I, fa I, I forgave you this massive unpayable debt. And the reason I forgave you this massive unpayable debt is because you pleaded with me for it. And I gave it to you. Verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Answer to the question? Absolutely yes. Actually, the question is, is phrased in the Greek in such a way that it demands a yes answer. It, 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 there is a, a necessity, even the, even the verbs used, there is a divine necessity here. You must forgive. You must forgive. There's a moral necessity. Beloved, listen, the, the proper response to receiving grace is to give grace. The proper response to receiving grace is to give grace. Because a man refuses to forgive, his Lord, verse 34, moved with anger, hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. King has him imprisoned and tortured. Imprisoned and tortured. Until he can pay off the entire debt, which... He's never going to do. He's never going to do it. 
Can't even make a dent in it. This unmerciful servant's judgment in the end was commensurate with his crime. This is the lex talionis, the law of retribution. He got what he gave. He got what he gave. Application. What is the application of this? Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I mean, these are really, really stern and scary words. Very stern. Very, very, very scary. And many commentators are actually just acknowledging that this reality, they, they, they want to, to get off um, what appears to them to be, you know, this, this uh, dilemma, this hook that they find themselves hanging on, which is, is you know, but, but we're eternally secure in Christ. So, so how can the Father do to the disciples if we don't forgive, you know, turned over to torturers? And so, and so what, what some commentators do is, is they, they try to explain these torturers in a, in a psychological way. They'll talk about, you know, if you, if you don't forgive people, you get really bitter and you can be tortured by your bitterness and, and you get a revenge spirit and that's torturous to you and your family and you can be an angry person or, or you know, you could, could even end up taking your own life and, and they just like fly on these flights of fancy to try to, try to evade the, the really clear and direct statements here. Okay, there's a better way. Can I, can I show you a better way? I'll show you a better way. Here it is. Don't forget the original question. Peter says, are there any limits on forgiveness? Jesus answers him, there are none provided your brother repents. I'll just kind of add this as a caveat. Even in the case where your brother does not repent, you must have within your heart a willingness to forgive when the opportunity presents itself that they do repent. But this is not speaking to believers and saying, listen, if you, know, you, were, if you don't forgive, then, then you're going to go to hell. What this is saying is, that if we don't have a character and spirit of forgiveness, we're not a child of the kingdom. We're not a child of the kingdom. We're, we're asking the wrong question here. And this can't be, by the way, notice uh, from your heart. This just can't be a, just a throwaway, you know, I forgive you, but I'm going to continue to hang on to it and grind it. And It's got to be sincere. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be full. It's got to be complete. Beloved, this is just one more in chapter 18 of these kind of shocking statements where Jesus says repeatedly throughout here, listen, you know, it all began with a question about who's greatest in the kingdom, right? With the assumption we're all great. Let's just figure out who's the great, great. And he says, if you don't humble yourself, if you don't put off worldliness, if you're not willing to deal with your sin in, in, in the most radical means necessary so that you are, you, you are a continual stumbling block within the body, 
And in this case here, if, if, if you're not willing to forgive, we're not talking about who's great in the kingdom anymore. We're, not, we're saying you're not even in. You're not a child of the kingdom. So this thing is, this is designed to, to warn us, to jolt us awake, to cause us to do some, some self-examination. The Apostle Paul says, you know, test yourself, right? To see if you be in the faith. That's what he's doing here. Let me close it out this way. What role does the gospel play in forgiveness? Let me kind of bring it together that way. And this is a requirement. This is, you know, I titled this thing, right? Our debt to forgive. It's an obligation. It has to be there for us. We don't do it perfectly, to be sure. But it has to be who we are. So where does the gospel fit in all of this? I mean, the answer is, is that, is that the gospel and forgiveness are like all together. All together. Let me show you. For, for example, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Chapters 1 through 3, he talks about that great calling of God, right? He's brought us into, into redemption. In chapter, the end of chapter 4, in verse 32, he says, right, live according to the calling of God in your life. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Over in Colossians, he says it this way, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, so, as those chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. See, the gospel not only enables us to be forgiven by God, it commands us to forgive one another. But it's not law, it's gospel, because it not only commands us to love one another, it empowers us to love one another. See, that's the beauty of all of this. When we, when we think upon the gospel and, and the forgiveness we have received in Christ, when we take the time to consider the zillion dollars that we owed and that has been taken away, it necessarily transforms us. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to save and sanctify His people. And so as we meditate on these things, knowing what we have been saved from and how much we have been forgiven, it will make us a forgiving people. It will. Sometimes we forget the promises of the gospel. Sometimes we doubt its power. But the gospel changes we look into the face of Christ, we grow from one stage of glory to another, Paul says. As you look into your own heart, if you say, you know what? I'm not as a, a forgiving person. Then what I say to you is first, revisit the cross of Christ. 
Make sure that you know who your Savior is and what he has done for you. And then meditate on these things. And may the Spirit of God transform you. Let's pray. Father, even the act of prayer, even of coming to you, presupposes we have been a forgiven people. And we have in Christ been richly forgiven. Far as the east is from the west. So Lord, may you transform us. May this community of believers become a place of forgiveness. It would cause the, the ears of, the, of our neighbors to tingle as they hear about it. We ask you to work in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.